Hello and welcome to another Cat's Cradle, the show within a show where we talk about games and game design and probably knives, usually knives. Often knives. It comes up. Regularly knives. Why are there so many knives? I sat on one. Well, I mean, that was the knife's chair. So what are you going to do? The knife was already sitting there. You're just going to... Um... Okay. The worst well. wedding I've ever been to. <laughs> Or you mean best. (laughs) (laughs) I am your host, your king, your cry-cry knife baby. It's me, Kat. I'm the baby in the cradle. Kirsten is here. Before Kirsten jumps in, I would like to let you know that Kirsten's here. I am. Yeah. That's right. Caught you off guard. (laughs) We have Kathleen. Hello. We haven't got a Nick. He's otherwise occupied, but we've brought in a ringer. Special guest, Bill. Hello. Hooray. It's Bill. And today I would like to talk about something that is not necessarily a game design thing, although if we get onto game design, I won't stop. I'd like to talk about coming up with characters for TTRPGs. I'd like to talk about everybody's character design process and maybe about how the games that they play influence that process. The last character I made... I don't know how much of it I can go into because I have no idea when this is coming out. But Dylan asked us to make characters for a spooky, yuki, fearsome, frightening one shot. And so the last character I built was in Dylan's heart engine. And I had a real good time because my normal instinct is to play people who are nice and likable because I want to be nice and likable. And I have to pretend. But um, because we were kind of explicitly told that this was going to be a horror story and everyone was, nobody was going to make it, I decided to just build a horrible little creep. Just a real awful creep of a man. (laughs) Well, and we're yet to see if you follow through on that. (laughs) That's true. I'm playing so far away from type that Bill is right. You've built this entire character with rotten wood. So hopefully, (laughs) uh, hopefully it falls over. Hopefully it falls over. So at least the way my process went is that I started with kind of the knowledge of what this character was going to go through because the GM made that very clear from the start. And I was like, well, I don't like it when my good characters suffer. So let's just be a real creep. And my initial plan was just like, I don't know, I'll be a creep wizard. But as we were going through the mechanics, kind of everything that I decided on pointed to something a little different from that. And so I guess what I've got is just like a horrible little wizard rogue with an awful knife. Just a real terrible knife. And then we we went around the table and we talked about horrible things that had happened in the immediate backstory to the campaign. And one of the questions was, what does your character do aboard this ship? And one of the options was surgeon. And the second that I claimed surgeon, I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> oh. I know who this little creep is. Kat, did that pull you away from a different idea that you were having previously? Or was that like, oh, it calcified now. I didn't have anything before and now I have everything. I wouldn't say it replaced an idea, but that was the moment that I began looking away from wizard and toward this like 
pervert. Horrible doctor pervert. Yeah. Mm. So I set aside what I had been working on and immediately kind of started working on what he would become. Mm -hmm. And then uh, by the end of it, I was sending Dylan abilities for my horrible knife that are bad. Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it can be just one small kernel that does that. You know, it's not like it doesn't have to be the entirety of a system or, you know, you push down a skill tree that happens to be really evocatively written and, and leads you towards some character. But it's just like the word surgeon yeah. <laughs> can calcify that. That's exactly where I was. Well, I think that that's a important part about character design if we're going to be talking about characters in RPGs specifically, that you can have ideas for a personality that you want to mess around with, a specific idea, but you take one little seed of something and you find places to attach it, and it sort of develops into some sort of assemblage over the course of having ideas that are yours and fusing those with things that are in the game. And in the best case scenario, it kind of just assembles itself like that. Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. Especially as you as you tell that story and you just you become more comfortable as the character, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would very much love to hear about a character that I'm sure our entire audience knows and loves, Mr. Cecile Fontaine. Okay. Tell me about where this stand-up citizen came from. (laughs) So thinking back, I remember you giving me the super high level for what was potentially going to be happening in the arc. A high level being like dealing with this pollen that is hallucinogenic. And I wanted to both be able to use that mechanically if it came up, which is why I chose the skills that I did. But more importantly, because like I, I don't often think of the system that hard when I'm coming up with a character. Like I typically try to play against type, type being, you know, whatever uh, class I've chosen. And so I remember thinking like, okay, this is somebody who like has done a bunch of like surviving out in the wild and has like probably a bunch of scars and war stories and could be a badass, but instead has relegated himself to the back room of a little shop that he tries to keep alive and just practicing his passion of weird mixology. And then throwing in Isabel, I also wanted to just like, I don't know, I haven't played around with the character that like has had to take responsibility for characters other than themselves. Like I have in recent memory, maybe always, played relatively, um, I don't know, somewhere between selfish and irresponsible (laughs) characters. Um, And so like just trying to play with a different personality and like that definitely still came out in, like he still was screwing up and was making selfish and irresponsible decisions, but I got the chance to lean a little bit more into, like, there are worse consequences than just something bad happening to you. I think that's kind of where it came from. The voice, I was just doing a really, really bad Daniel Plainview that ended up sounding like Agent Smith, um, because Mm. I don't know what my voice sounds like, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It really worked for Steel, though. Like, I... (laughs) <laughs> I liked it. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it ended up a voice that, yeah, that that stayed at least consistent, but it was not what I was attempting. <laughs> That's actually a really interesting point that you made is not just playing against type, like thinking about what the expectations for the type of character you've chosen are, but also playing against your type. Like I also, when I'm making a character, will go, okay, my last my last character was a paladin. My character before that was a cleric. Now it's time for me to play a bard. I always play healers. Don't worry about it. But, um, or just being like, you know, my last character was a real dipshit. My character before that was a dipshit. Maybe it's time that I played somebody with a brain. <laughs> oh, wait, my entire party is dipshits. Maybe I should be the one heroic character. Maybe. Well, okay, that's interesting. Too. How do you, I will have to think of my answer for this as well, but how do you um, open anybody take into account, like, when you are starting a new campaign, a new arc, and something where multiple people together are making new characters and they will have to interact, how much do you let what everybody else is playing, either class-wise or personality type-wise or whatever it may be, influence decisions you're making? Like, do you tweak what you do based on what, you know, the first interactions you have with other characters? Or if you do, you know, session zero discussions, do you have you radically changed what your character is based on that? I'd say for myself, sometimes. Uh, if, if you can, sometimes you can tell there's a real meta problem. And I guess what I mean is like, really, if it's party's really skewed in one direction and you're like, okay, hey, there will need to be some balance. Sometimes I'll tweak for that. Uh, sometimes if I think that it, there might be a little bit of clash, I'll still let it happen. Sometimes I'm like, ah, eh, you know what? Let's play with this. Let's see what this, uh, how this cocktail turns out, right? <laughs> yeah. Personally, I'm a huge sucker for player characters that have uh, pre-existing relationships with other characters before the thing starts. That there's some sort of dynamic to build off of that obviously is going to be filled in and evolve over the course of the characters knowing each other. But... Having a spark, even as small as like, oh, these characters are friends or like this character's kind of a jerk of a coworker and like steals the other character's lunches. This is the jerk who's doing yoga in the common room, like those sorts of things. Going back to my previous comment, I like to have little pieces to work with and connect together and those will lead to other things. How do you... For things like for, uh, uh, inter, um, relationships with other characters, how do you determine that with somebody? Like, what level of detail do you like to get into? Or what level of buy-in do you try to get from the other person in the party that is going to be the other half of that relationship? Hmm. A piece of advice that Kat has given me multiple times about writing characters is that you have to leave... God loves the work, man. Don't trust Whitey. <laughs> You need to leave some room for growth in any sort of thing. And so setting up the skeleton of something I think is more important than fleshing out all of the details at first. And so that conversation between the other player is, I think, generally pretty brief. And sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. But like, I think the entire point is to have that seed that can grow or having a platform to jump off of, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The amount that I take party composition into account 
depends entirely on how specialized character builds are in the game I'm playing. Hmm. Like if I'm playing Heroic Chord, I'll just pick whatever. When we played uh, Breach, I came into it being like, I am playing a security guard. His name is Dustin Hoffman. He's never seen a Dustin Hoffman movie and he hates working. (laughs) Because those games, like characters aren't as highly specialized as they are in a game like D&D. For reference, Breach, we're playing in case of an emergency, which is very rules light. Extremely. Like in D&D, if you have a party without a healer, you're boned. If you have a party without an arcane caster, you're also in trouble. <laughs> so when you're playing a D&D campaign, at least I tend to be really tactical with my decisions, which is why I play cleric, druid, paladin, and bard, because I must have healing magic or I feel naked. <laughs> I must. Yeah, in games where characters are less specialized, I'm more confident to just show up with a concept and say, yeah, this is my contribution to the party. Neat. (laughs) Pleasure to meet you all. I think what you just said about D&D, it's funny that that goes back to my sort of like wanting to play against the the, the type, specifically the class type. Like I will make the opposite decision of you and tactically pick the worst, most useless thing just to cause drama. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it, it, it depends on what you're playing for. If you're just playing for fun, God forbid, then yeah, it's, 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 technically it's probably fun. But like, you know, making podcasts, making something for entertainment, I think it's a lot of fun to pick something that is like at odds with what the party actually needs or pick the thing that the party would need and play them just completely opposite to how like the gamer right way would be. Mm. You like to cause problems on purpose. Now... Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, and I think that, like, that is also in a fun place to be when you're coming up with, like, the, if you think of less, if we're thinking of less the makeup of one character, but the makeup of a party, how the character of that party comes to be, like, how they interact with one another, who becomes the face, who, like, that is also something that I feel like doesn't ever need to be dictated or maybe even thought of beforehand. And it's so interesting that that becomes something that so naturally evolves from how people develop those relationships as these characters, um, just based on those little seeds. Yeah. Bill causes problems on purpose. I am compelled to fix problems. This is how our characters always relate to each other. I'm really excited for this one shot because I'm going to try my best not to be cleaning up after you the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we were both, once again, trying to do exactly the opposite. And maybe it's, you know, just <laughs> wanting to practice, like wanting to yeah. gain new skills in doing this. So now I would like to turn to Kathleen. Hmm? Because Kathleen, you recently did something very cool and fun that has given you some insight into this. Yes. I am starting a, just for fun, um, in-person heroic chord campaign with some friends. And we did our session zero the uh, last weekend. And it was a lot of fun. In particular, these are all people who have played other role-playing games, but have not I think played as many games that are as aggressively character forward as Heroic Chord is. 
And we had a lot of fun going through the manual and finding things and coming up with concepts and watching concepts sort of emerge as things went forward. I think that also Heroic Chord has a kind of demanding character creation process in some respects in that it's not ultra crunchy, but the questions of key and facet are asking you pretty open-ended questions about what your character's personality is, sort of straight off the bat. And that's not something that Dungeons & Dragons asks you to do, for instance. Oh, yeah. The most D&D cares about what kind of person you are is your alignment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this is like, well, what drives your character? Which is a difficult question to answer sometimes. That really sort of sets you up to start thinking about who your character is in a way that I hope that everyone found compelling. Sort of the same thing with character lesson. Yeah. I've been thinking about that actually while we've been recording, that I found that a really great way to guide people into discovering their characters. I really liked that setup. The other thing... I've been thinking of over the course of this conversation is the sort of question of composition. And we have a really interesting mix of backgrounds and sort of personalities going on. In particular, one thread that I'm looking forward to seeing what the players end up doing is we have hmm, a practical navigator who is more of a merchant these days. We have a couple of practically untamed survivalists, and we have a crusader who was raised on the stories of old world glory and nobility from a family that is trying to pretend that those things still exist. And I have them going into a ruin on the Goat Home Velt, as our first sort of adventure, and I am really looking forward to being able to see what the players are going to pick up on and having a lot of fun thinking about what I can craft to give them each something interesting to do with each other. Mm. That does sound like fun. And on some level, I recognized how demanding character creation was, which was why I put in random tables. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I can understand why a person wouldn't want to use random tables because I never use them. <laughs> but they're there. Listener, there there are random character creation tables. Mm -hmm. And I hope that I've made good enough tables that you can roll them and come up with a compelling character concept. I think you can. And it's nice to have the tables there in case you are paralyzed with choice to look, mm -hmm. oh, here are some examples of the sort of things that I can do. Yeah, like key well, is anything. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's also a good, if not exercise, it's, it's like a fun thing to like, oh, I want to just make a bunch of characters. Like, I'm going to roll these. Who would this person become apart from this pile of words? Like, I think that's, if we were talking about just character creation, character creation as its own game, I think is is a fun thing to delve into sometimes as well, even if you don't end up ever playing with that character, just seeing what comes out when you uh, roll the, the dice just on a, a random build. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. 
I think there are a lot of games like that where character creation is itself kind of a satisfying game. Uh, like a satisfying and interesting part of play. I know that my sibling and I, when we were kids, would take big expansive RPGs and create a bunch of characters for them just because the character creation in and of itself was really compelling. Yeah. Like I've got a bunch of Golden Sky Stories characters and that's not a particularly crunchy or deep game, but it's just so fun to think of little animal friends. It's just so fun to think of little buddies. <laughs> it's like even in games that aren't particularly deep or aren't particularly heavy or crunchy, you can still sit down with the book and be like, I want to be a seagull. You can only do that in some games, Kat. You can only do that in some games. Yeah. You, you can do those in the important games, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I flip us to the complete opposite of fun animals and ask, how do you think about, um, if not, like, the capital letters tragedy in your character's background, at least, like, what is motivating them? How much do you, when coming up with somebody, you know, maybe, you know, go through an example of, of a recent character, um, how much do you try to think of at the outset versus getting comfortable in the character before determining, like, what it is that's actually driving them? Usually I... Oh, geez, I have actually have a, have a recurring pattern of doing this. Oh, no. Where I do, like, broad strokes, extremely yeah. broad strokes. So if there is any tragedy, it's immediate and present and has a market effect on where they are now. And then usually what happens is as I play the character, I kind of feel out a little bit more of who they are. And then I start thinking about why they are that way and interesting things that could have happened in their backstory to contribute to that. So I have a, a market history of like halfway through a campaign messaging my GM be like, hey, I figured out my backstory. <laughs> well, I think I take it a, a similar approach I think it's just liking improvisational storytelling more than having it all like defined beforehand that like knowing there is something bad in capital letters um, and like obviously making it recent so that you're telling the story about the most interesting time in this character's life. But like, yeah, having that like throughout the first half of whatever campaign you're going through, sort of slowly filling in the details in your own mind as long as it isn't like completely contradictory to what's happening. And actually, maybe as as the campaign goes on, as the story goes on, those guardrails of what would break canon actually help determine what it is that happened to your character and why they are like that. Like, I think you can tell this story in both directions at the same time. Like, you start from the beginning of the campaign, but as you move forward, you're painting backwards how that character exists. Yeah, this may or may not, depending on when it comes out relative to Edge of the World, but I didn't figure anything out about Drang's ex until like maybe like a month before she shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I messaged Dylan and was like, I have an idea. Drang has an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> and it, uh, yeah, it took me months to figure out why Maisel was like that. Dylan and I remember at one point we did a, I think, three-hour session that was just like, let's talk about before the campaign. And that's like when it finally solidified. And we were probably, I don't know, 
20 episodes in. Yeah, okay. I'm glad to know I'm not alone in doing this then. <laughs> <laughs> we are such a headache for Dylan. <laughs> no, but Sorry. sometimes you just get this like gut reaction that like, yeah, this is definitely something that my character has in their past. And it you don't really think about it beforehand until something sparks this like gut reaction of like, yeah, this is something they have. I mean, it's interesting to utilize things from the past from the get-go, but I painted more broad strokes. Like from my personal experience, if I am too fine detailed with my past, sometimes it doesn't actually gel with what is actually happened because I tr oh, it's almost like my brain is trying to predict the story as opposed to let the story sure. unfold. So if I leave it more broad strokes, then it can be guided by what's actually happening in the story at the time. So I have a question for Kirsten. Mm-hmm. When I was starting planning for Hunter Farm Girl Dragon Queen, I sent you a text that was like, hey, Kirsten, what's Penelope's home life like? And you pretty much immediately responded with a list of names, ages, and descriptions. Did you have that prepared or did you just bullshit me immediately over text? I, when you asked, it just came into my mind. Like that was just like the gut reaction of like, yeah, this is how Penelope's family is. It's basically a family of Penelope's, except her father. Because <laughs> it just, yeah. I had this image of a gaggle of people sitting around a table and just a flurry of activity. And <laughs> just like, yeah, and this would explain why Penelope is, I'm not going to say bad, but... I will. Kind of bad. <laughs> 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 so that actually brings up something that has been lurking in the background of our conversation pretty much the whole time. And that is the role of the GM in helping people shape their characters. Because you didn't know what Penelope's home life was until I asked you. Mm -hmm. I didn't have this horrible creep I'm playing for the Halloween one shot in mind until Dylan let us know what their plans were. And specifically what we could expect our characters to go through. Yeah. So now my question is, to what extent have the GMs you've played with influenced your character choices? And what advice would you have for GMs looking to bring out the best in their players? Hmm. I find that GMs in general are really helpful in helping me flesh out who my character is. Like, to me, they kind of act like a director. And I don't mean they direct what you do, but they, they flesh out kind of things that are around what your character is experiencing. So it kind of helps give you this broader view of, like, where is my character sitting in this? Where is my character going to be going? Where has my character come from? Again, I think that there is a sort of trust that has to be involved between the players and the GM. And... This goes both ways, to let someone else touch your world or touch your character and let them grow together. That sort of collaboration requires some trust. It requires some good faith on both people's parts. But the credo from Powered by the Apocalypse games is always be a fan of your players, right? Mm -hmm. And that means find out what your players are interested in. Find out what they respond to. Give them options. And 
you will develop patterns together just by doing that as you feed off of each other. Mm. Like there are some things that have developed in Tissa as a result of things that you have said and I have said back or bits of her backstory that we have started filling in together recently. Yeah. The joy of anything improvised for me is always the emergence of the story. No one built the whole thing. It all sort of just, again, built itself out of all of the little pieces that everyone put into it. Yeah, if anything, I think the moral of this particular story is that you don't need to build your whole character. Come to the table with a surface for things to bounce off of and uh, see where it goes. Just the kinesthetic, like, you will find out more about who you are embodying by interacting with the world and with other characters and having answers demanded of you rather than trying to predict all of them beforehand, I think is a another way to consider, like, not just the role of the GM, but any other character who, like, just, you know, interacts with you and, and asks anything about what you're doing. Or, you know, in my case, when somebody wanted to get erotic fan fiction made and then I had to figure out what Maisel's ex-husband's name was. Basil didn't have an ex-husband before I was thinking about that, but there it was. <laughs> now, I need to clarify that when Bill says somebody, he's not doing it in the coy way that means somebody on the call. He's referring to oh, somebody no. not on the call because <laughs> I, this somebody, is still aghast at this. <laughs> the whole sequence of events is still nightmarish to me, Cat. <laughs> But what's wild is something useful and character-relevant still came out of that experience because an answer was demanded of me. Like, it still helped flesh out the character. Basil's not even the most erotic Edge of the World character. No, she's probably the least. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is sexier than just misery and constantly doing the wrong thing. <laughs> 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 like looking at the thing that would be sexy and then doing the opposite of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fuck me up like you fucked up your life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will cause sexy problems on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have sort of Symphony's questions, I think, before we call this one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, Kirsten, to a lesser extent, Bill. Hi. Hi. To what extent have your characters changed from who you thought they were going in? Like, Kirsten, was there anything you pictured for Penelope in that very first session that we played that has been completely thrown out the window since we started? Yeah. So at first, I think Penelope was a lot closer to, in my head, to Felicity, who I had played previously, and that she was like going to be a little bit more in tune with, like, nature and a little bit more of a empathetic, caring person. And I'm not saying she doesn't have those traits, but she was going to be a little bit more, like, in that vein. Whereas as I started playing her, I discovered that she's still very um, impulsive and selfish. Not that she maliciously intends to be selfish, but she's still, you know learning about a broader world beyond herself. 
yeah, I think at the very start I had sort of a, it was a different path that I kind of had thinking that she would follow. And then it kind of turned a bit and went a little bit more in the, into that vein. One of the things that's fun about Tissa is being able to express how she's feeling or what she's thinking without having to say anything and really communicating through gestures a lot. But just her speaking voice was something that developed pretty slowly for me. And I kind of like the place where I'm at. The other kind of struggle that I always had was like, whenever I write about Tissa and what's going on in her head or that sort of thing, it's always way more serious than is necessary for sort of symphonies, I think. And that's something that y'all have helped me with a bit, I think is um, helping her be a more dynamic and fun character in that regard. Because you're a big old drama goth. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think, we, I think we've actually discussed this in Cat's Cradle. <laughs> and to me, Tissa's a very fun character to interact with. I love interacting with Tissa because uh, you never know what she's going to focus on and you never know what she's going to pick up on. Tissa's kind of the first person to notice when I've done something subtle with an NPC uh, <laughs> that Cobb and Penelope completely miss. So she's also very rewarding from a GM perspective because she always picks up the breadcrumbs I put down, which is nice. Hmm. And I've, it's interesting, that Kathleen, that you mentioned Tissa's speaking style because like, I, it didn't really gel until you mentioned it, but... Penelope over time has developed, and I guess that's a natural thing, the more characters interact, the more their relationship is going to develop and solidify. But I feel like Penelope has understood Tissa's speaking style more and more as you've grown into Tissa's speaking style. So it's got like that's just very interesting that just innately how characters can pick up on that pattern. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Well, I'm not even just understanding. I feel like it was an episode or two after Cecile took his leave. You two were interacting, I think, on the deck of the ship, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you fully put on a uh, Penelope is talking specifically to Tissa voice. Like, you weren't just playing Penelope. <laughs> you were playing Penelope talking to Tissa. And it was like, it was it was very obvious that, like, you are now as this character tempering the way that you interact with them, which was really, really cool to hear. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, you didn't you didn't notice it, did you, bud? No, I was just I guess it was I was purpose, just invested yeah. in, in in engaging with, with Tissa. And I think that's the really cool thing, is the stronger your group's characters are, the stronger your character becomes too, because it the all the relationships feed into each other and help you discover yourself and themselves and like that's a really cool example of because Tissa has such a strong character it helped Penelope's interaction yeah and it's at the point where like Kathleen can make a little sound and there are several <laughs> times in sort of symphonies where Kathleen will make a little sound and the nearest NPC will be like Tissa what's up yeah <laughs> Uh, Marcus did it in season one. Gideon does it in season two. Yeah. <laughs> because I think Tissa's speaking style is so well defined at this point that she doesn't really need to say much. In fact, she prefers it that way. She's 
a very internal sort of character. Yeah, but it's given us some really beautiful moments, I think. Yeah. So, Bill, same question to you about Cecile now. Like, what has, what changed? I mean, he obviously wasn't with us as long as Tiss and Penelope, but what changed about that uh, big barman? <laughs> I think the biggest thing was I was originally, I think, going to be a little more, I don't know, maybe le- leaning into like melodrama. I was definitely going to play more into like the family, and I wasn't planning on being as silly right away. But I think three things happened. Number one, Kat, you generously gave me room to play with made up drinks. <laughs> Two, we sort of like found what was going to happen with why I was interacting with the party that Isabel was clearly going to, like, not be regularly around. And then three, I think just me taking myself out of the character and thinking of the actual audio product, wanting to play something opposite to Purity and Pearl, which was so good and so heavy. Having a little respite of, like, this is going to be a little goofy. Um, It changed kind of right away, but it was the difference between concept and execution. Mm. The funny thing about the bar scene was I legitimately had no idea where that was going to go when I proposed it. Well, and that's why I love playing with you because we, <laughs> we have done that to each other and it works out most of the yeah. time. <laughs> I was like, one of two things is going to happen. Bill's either going to do a crime or he's going to legitimately get serious about alcohol. either one of those is going to be interesting so let's just uh see which road we go down and the answer was crime (laughs) that was fine by me it was it was a beautiful crime it was a masterpiece (laughs) but like to the character it helped me realize okay this is going to be just a a goofy guy goofy but also kind of self-serious which i love about him yeah 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 uh and it's an interesting thing too in the fact that just like we as people, we engage differently depending on our situations or circumstances and that kind of thing. And whether, oh, we're at work right now or we're at home or we're with our best friend or whatever. Cecile being like, you mentioned that he might have had a past where he was a little bit more survivalist and things like that. Maybe he wouldn't be as goofy if his character had been in Purity and Peril. I guess I used to kind of think, oh, when you build a character, you set some words to describe them. And that's your character, but it's, they have full capacity to be many different people at once, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. If your character contradicts themselves, let them, for they contain multitudes or whatever. Yeah. And I think another thing, I guess, if we're going to, as we tend to with, with Cat's Cradles and with advice, that would be to let them contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. Give your characters enough breathing room to fit multitudes in there and see what comes out. And having trust in your team means you have a safe and creative space to build characters together and tell wonderful stories. Yeah. I think this goes without saying, listener, but I want to hear all about your characters. This is not a joke. I'm not putting you on. I want to hear all about your characters, listener. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Especially if you've played Heroic Chord. Please, 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 please. You can find us on Twitter at PeachGardenRPGs, or you can visit our website at PeachGardenGames.com. 
You can also join us on the Heroic Discord, which is linked in our pinned tweet on Twitter or the Be Gay Roll Dice Network Discord. Any of these are great places to tell me about your characters. I want it. If you're playing in Kathleen's group and I know you personally on Discord, <laughs> you're going to have to tell me you know who you are. <laughs> you, <laughs> One of our fans knows exactly who I'm talking to right now. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for joining us for this Cat's Cradle. Thank you for having me. It was a, just a real nice talk. Yeah. I love talking characters with Bill. Because I make only the best ones. Only the best ones. So if you want to test that, you can find us on the podcast Edge of the World. It's jammed by Dylan. You know, Dylan, you love Dylan. You can find us on Twitter at TFTT Presents and website at TFTTPresents.com. There you can learn about us, learn more about the characters that we've kind of mentioned obliquely in this episode, and listen to their adventures, along with our good friends, Dalton and Joe. Is there anywhere that they can find Bill personally? I mean, yeah, I've got a Twitter now. I broke down. You can follow me at Bill from online on Twitter. Yeah. At least till Lindsey Graham gets you. Yeah, for now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before someone from one of the Carolinas gets on Bill's bad side. <laughs> no, yeah, you can find me there. Uh, I'm also, I post the most from the TFTG Presents uh, mm. Twitter. So if you just send some something there, I'll probably see it first. That makes sense, yeah. Kathleen Kirsten, good job. Well done. I loved hearing more about what went into Tissa and Penelope today. Yay! I, I actually learned a bit about my own process, so it was it was enlightening to hear. Hmm. Hmm. That's our Kirsten. She's a mystery even to herself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's, how many times do do people know me better than I know myself? It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and. Catch you next time, listener. Bye. 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 Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network. What does a barbarian war criminal, an undead cultist, a pyromaniac goblin, a hot topic reject, and a bard whose family is very, very cursed all have in common? Well, that's very simple. They're all our main cast. We are Goblets and Gays, a mostly Pathfinder 2E podcast set in a homebrew world. If Pathfinder isn't your thing, we have all sorts of other awesome games for you to enjoy. Join us every Wednesday for episodes of our main campaign, Blood of Kings, as these chaotic gays attempt to locate some missing royalty. Don't forget to follow us on all social media channels at Goblets and Gays to stay up to date with our amazing projects. And remember to eat your vegetables.